Hello, and welcome to Sinobabble, the Chinese history podcast. This is episode five of the 20th Century China series. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the May the 4th movement. On May 4th, 1919, around 3,000 students from Beijing University and some 12 other universities in the capital gathered in Tiananmen Square to voice their opposition to events taking place at the Paris Peace Conference. What started as a peaceful march erupted into a violent protest and then into a nationwide cultural and intellectual movement that was to last for three years. This movement is now known as the May 4th movement and is commonly cited as a decisive moment in China's intellectual history, a short burst of vigour that is still examined, praised and held up as a guiding example in China till this day. On the surface, it seems as if this movement emerged primarily as a response to current events, particularly the injustice China suffered at the hands of the Japanese and the West in the aftermath of the First World War. However, most historians see May the 4th less as a new standalone campaign and more as a continuation of the new culture movement that we had begun discussing in the previous episode. In fact, the May the 4th movement has been described by many as simply as a continuation of the reformist movement of 1898, which we talked about in episode 2. It's sometimes called China's Enlightenment, though there are enough people who disagree with that statement. Whether the movement was able to usher in a new era or not will be explored in the rest of this episode, but what you should know is that May the 4th is significant enough to warrant an episode entirely of its own. If it wasn't the breaking point with China's past, then it was certainly the awakening point, the critical juncture at which a new intellectual class emerged to wake the Chinese people up and demand that they move with the times or risk remaining a backward global pariah. Personally, I do think that a line can be drawn connecting all the reformist movements that we've spoken about thus far and the May the 4th movement, especially as we're starting to see a lot of familiar names from previous episodes pop up yet again. But before we talk about the link between the new culture movement and the May the 4th movement, I first want to go over the actual events that took place leading up to the demonstrations and during the protest itself. So first, we have to start with China's role in the First World War. So while Europe was thrown into complete chaos from 1914 to 1918, World War I actually provided something of an opportunity for China. For the first time since the Opium Wars, there were no foreigners banging on China's door, demanding or, well, actually forcing cooperation, imposing their values and habits on the populace, opening up businesses and setting up unfavorable terms of trade with the government, etc., etc., all Western armed forces and men were called back to Europe to fight on the home front, and they never really returned, at least not with the vigour with which they had initially arrived. This provided a huge opportunity for East Coast dwellers, especially in the post-war period. Chinese managers and compradors stepped into the managerial roles left vacant by their Western supervisors, while new Chinese-run businesses emerged to challenge teetering European ones. A new professional class of bankers, lawyers and doctors emerged as young men returning from education abroad were able to fulfil roles usually taken up by foreigners. On top of that, China managed to find a role in the actual Allied war effort. Having declared her support for the Allies, China then sent around 200,000 men to the Western Front to help out. This group of Chinese labourers, often known as the Coolie Corp, did not participate in the actual fighting, but usually did most of the heavy manual labour like digging trenches, building roads and cleaning up the fields after battles. 
China was able to participate in a meaningful way and hoped that it would pay off after the war, especially if the Allies actually managed to defeat Germany, which would hopefully result in the German concession of Shandong province being returned to Chinese rule. But things didn't go down that smoothly. There was a downside to the absence of Western powers in China. The withdrawal of German forces from Shandong left a power vacuum that was quickly filled by invading Japanese troops, who had declared themselves on the side of the Allies when the war broke out. Not only did the Japanese leverage the idea of securing a German stronghold as an excuse to invade Shandong, they even colluded with Yuan Shikai and other warlords in the region, guaranteeing Japanese support for their expansionist efforts as long as they handed over rights to govern the province. But their ambitions didn't stop there. They started encouraging migration to the northeast of China, commonly known as Manchuria, which had been left almost empty as the last imperial dynasty, who were the Manchus, had forbidden migration of Han Chinese to their native province during their reign. Manchuria was rich in natural resources and empty enough to exploit the vast land for agricultural and hunting purposes, which is what the Japanese set out to do. They set up a railway linking the northeast to Shandong and used migrant labour to power the new industries and government agencies that sprung up across the area. To make matters worse, the Japanese expansionist aims were actually ratified by the Western powers in the wake of the First World War. At the Paris Peace Conference, where the famous Treaty of Versailles was signed, Japan was essentially rewarded for being a good ally, despite the fact that they didn't actually do any fighting for the allies in the war. To add insult to injury, the secret arrangements between the Japanese and the central Chinese government meant that Chinese officials in Paris didn't really have the grounds to object to Japanese claims to Shandong. Meanwhile, China's own contributions to the war were completely overlooked, while sovereignty rights were practically handed out to new states in Europe, such as Latvia and Estonia. It was clear that the Western powers did not see China as equal. Rather, China was still a backwards oriental state that had yet to really free itself and its peasant society from their feudal mentality. In China, there was general public outrage, but one group in particular was so angered that they were driven to action. Young intellectuals and particularly students of China's most prestigious university, Beijing University, or Beida as it's commonly referred to, banded together to signal their opposition to this horrendous turn of events. They had just about had it with China. They'd had it with the corrupt officials, with the outdated family values that held back their emotional development, and with the lack of public consciousness. It was time for China to wake up and throw off the shackles of the past. These young men saw China's future clear as day. They knew that if China didn't make some drastic changes right at that very moment, then it risked being annihilated altogether. On the morning of May 4th, 1919, student representatives from 13 Beijing colleges and universities drafted a bill of resolutions with five main points. The first point was a general denouncement of the Shandong issue. The following four points were more points of action. The second point was to awaken the masses all around the country. The third, to hold a mass meeting of all the residents of Beijing. The fourth, form a Beijing Students' Union. And the fifth was to hold a demonstration to protest the Shandong Agreement that was going to be signed in Paris. Of interest to us are the second and fifth resolutions. The fifth resolution, to hold a demonstration, called for immediate action and was actually followed through with that day. 
The 3,000 strong group of students marched to Tiananmen, right up to the gates of the Imperial Palace, to demand that China not sign the abominable treaty and to protest against the government corruption and collusion with the Japanese. Having been turned away from the foreign legation by the military and police forces, they descended upon the residence of pro-Japanese Minister of Communications Cao Ruolin, breaking into his house, overwhelming the guards, and violently beating Chinese minister to Japan, Jiang Zongxiang. After they were done, they set the house on fire. 32 of the protesters were arrested after clashing with the armed forces, but this did not deter the spirit of the movement. Citizens' rallies broke out in support of the students in other cities, protesting the Shandong Agreement and also demanding the release of the students. Protest fever broke out amongst the secondary and university students and workers in other parts of the country. On June 5th, businessmen and workers went on strike and, in general, a boycott of Japanese goods was started. The disruption paid off to an extent as Cao Ruolin and Jiang Zongxiang were both let go from their positions and there was no more strike action after June 12th. It should be noted that in the end, the Chinese foreign legation in Paris didn't actually sign the treaty agreeing to the handover of Shandong, but it ended up being a clause in the Treaty of Versailles, so their opinion didn't really have any sway on the matter in the end. So the fifth resolution embodied the students' short-term aims for the May 4th movement and the action needed to solve the deep-seated societal issues China was facing. The second resolution, the Awakening of the Masses, indicates the long-term aim of the student protesters. These university students were going to be, and in some cases already were, China's new intellectual class. As such, they had tasked themselves with creating a new cultural landscape different from the one their predecessors had envisaged. They were determined to come down from the lofty heights of the elite literati and bring progress to all the peoples of China. It's important that we look at the long-term aims of these new youth intellectuals, as just from looking at the events just discussed, it seems as if the May the 4th movement was merely a series of protests and demonstrations aimed at the current ineffective central government and the pro-Japanese colluders therein. But when we discuss the May 4th movement, we're usually referring to the whole period of 1919 to 1921, which constitutes part of the continuing cultural revolution in China started by the post-Shinhai revolution reformers. We talked briefly about the new culture movement in the last episode, and most people usually lump this movement and the May 4th movement in together, covering the period 1915 to 1921. The two movements are actually literally connected, as many of the Beidar students who took part in the May 4th demonstrations were taught by the advocates of the new culture movement, many of whom went on to become faculty members of Beidar. Beidar had become sort of a centre of reformist thought and activity during the new culture movement. In the years leading up to the May 4th movement, many reformist teachers and students had joined forces to foment change in China's intellectual sphere, which they then hoped to spread to the whole of Chinese society. Like I said, many of the teachers were those who had participated in previous reform movements and believed strongly in the potential of Western democracy and science to help lift China out of its backward state, despite the tendency of the Chinese people to submit to pretty much anyone who came along claiming to be the emperor. Some of the teachers we are already familiar with, including Chen Dushou, who started the new youth magazine in 1915, Hu Shi, who wrote into said magazine about his suggestions for 
the reform of new literature. Other important reformists include Qian Xuantong and Lu Xun, as well as Li Dajiao, who was actually a librarian at the university, but we'll include him here because he becomes very important a little later on in the story. This generation was caught between the old and the new world. They battled against old China with its filial piety and arranged marriages and sought out education abroad. They shirked official positions and became teachers and writers instead, but they were never really able to fully break away from the past and they were unable to fully sketch out a new future for China, which they knew full well. There also just weren't that many of them, which made them feel even more alone in their quest to rejuvenate the country. They had failed in their revolutions, just as the 1898 reformers had failed before them. But they had laid the path for the May the 4th students to take over the mantle of building a new China. The youthful students, then, were these teachers' last hope, and the middle-aged reformers formed a bond over this common cause. These teachers actively encouraged China's new youth to reform Chinese society, be more individualistic, not seek out any political posts, not to remain lofty elitists, to not just support new ideas, but actively attack China's old traditions. Chen Duxiu, in particular, encouraged the youths to criticise and reject Confucianism. And on the first page of the first edition of New Youth magazine, so named for this reason, he wrote, I, with tears, place my plea before the fresh and vital youth in the hope that they will achieve self-awareness and begin to struggle. What is this self-awareness? It is to be conscious of the value and possibility of one's young life. The teachers supported the students to the fullest, but they were also their harshest critics, mainly because they wanted them to succeed more than anyone else. At the same time, these students both relished their teachers' encouragement and sought to break away from their broader, dated ideologies and develop ideas of their own. Born mostly in the 1890s, these student intellectuals were too young to remember the failed reform movements of the late Qing period and were also too young to be pessimistic about the failures of the 1911 revolution. Most of them had had the benefits of a modern education, not so much aimed at becoming scholarly officials in a dying system, but to become modern citizens in a modern world. They were less the dreamers that their teachers were and more architects, or at least potential architects. One of these young intellectuals was Luo Jialun. 22 years old at the time of the May 4th movement, he's described as having a fiery temper and an unkept, ungentlemanlike appearance. Another prominent leader was Fu Sinian, a year younger than Luo and less political and more classically educated he was a literature student who entered the university at the same time as Law. Despite their differences in interest and temperament, the two still found common ground in their love of Western teaching. They became good friends and established the New Tide Society along with 20 of their classmates in 1919. The New Tide Society was the embodiment of the hopes and dreams of both the old and the new intellectuals, as well as a commitment to doing something practical to change the state of China. One of their first moves was to set up a magazine entitled New Tide, which was primarily aimed at school-aged children and encouraged them to fight for spiritual emancipation and throw off the examination system mentality and embrace modern scientific thought. 
They stuffed the pages full of explanations of complex translations of English philosophical, mathematical and psychological phrases, seeking as much to increase their own knowledge as the knowledge of their readers. They also learned how to raise their own money and how the publishing industry worked, as the university threatened to remove their funding for their overtly radical ideas on multiple occasions. They also picked up the new youth cause of reforming language and literature, writing new vernacular poetry and short stories, and contributing significantly to the development of a new style of literature in China. Not only did they promote the modernization of language, but they also took the opportunity to shed light on China's social issues, such as familial strife, prostitution, repression of affection, and drug addiction. They also made strides to create literature that addressed the realities of the lives of the common people and make sure that their literature reached as low down into society as possible. They did this mainly by setting up the Beijing University Commoners Education Lecture Society. Try saying that 10 times quickly. Joining forces with the more conservatively minded students from Beida, the New Tide group were able to achieve something their teachers never had, the spreading of the message to the masses. The conservative faction of the university included students such as Jiang Guotao and Xu Dehong, who differed from other student activists in that they were less focused on critiquing Chinese culture than they were participating in the patriotic activity of national salvation. Jiang Guotao and Xu Dehong were two of the founders of Citizen magazine, originally vehemently opposed to the other New Tide-style activists constant complaining about Confucianism being the root of all of China's problems. However, like the New Tide activists, they realised that in order to save China, a broader social awakening was necessary. And so the two groups put aside their differences and in March 1919, just two months before the demonstrations, they took to the streets to deliver rousing speeches and lectures to passers-by. They stood on street corners espousing new values such as family reform and equality between different groups such as between men and women and between physical labourers and mental labourers. Their activities continued undeterred until after the demonstrations in May, which led to some police enforcement against the speakers. The events leading up to and including the May 4th demonstrations allowed the new young intellectuals to forge a new identity. Unlike previous revolutionaries who shrunk and became morose when their revolutions fizzled, the May the Fourthers stuck resolutely to their ideals, continuing to attack the Confucian worldview and social structure still held by many Chinese well into the 1920s. And many of them went on to become prominent contributors in China's social and intellectual spheres, and even gained key positions in the nationalist and communist parties before and after 1949. Science and democracy became huge buzzwords. A preoccupation with scientific thinking and the concept of causality and outcome developed, and many intellectuals began to adopt methodologies from Western disciplines, such as economics, history and philosophy, in order to find answers to their own problems. New methods of historiography that focused less on chronology and more on thematic analysis emerged, just one of the many ways in which the progressive trends of knowledge were moving into the academic world. At the same time, new ideologies took hold and socialists, Marxists and feminists alike all began rising up to find ways to change society through continued activism. 
Of all the literary examples, it was Ibsen's play A Doll's House that became an inspiration for young women who used the play's central character Nora's defiance of her traditional marriage as a symbol for their own rejection of tradition and their embracing of free love. Huge numbers of periodicals and newspapers written in the vernacular were published in the wake of the May 4th movement, all discussing various issues to do with social and cultural problems and aimed at uniting the populace along previously stringent class, regional and occupational lines. Many of them did not survive, but they were a sign of the times and a testament to the force of the May 4th spirit. So now we know what the May 4th movement was and what some of the broader outcomes of the movement were. Apart from these broader but still significant outcomes, I do want to talk about two major outcomes of the time. The first is the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which I'm just going to call the CCP from now on, just for brevity's sake. And the second one is with regards to the revolution in literature. So we'll start with the Communist Party. As the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution and the fall of the Romanovs began to be fully understood around the world, many Chinese began to analyse what happened in Russia and see if any lessons could be drawn from their experiences to aid in China's current plight. One such interested party was Li Dajiao, who we mentioned towards the beginning of the podcast. See, I promised he'd show up again. Having sacrificed his own comfort to study modern topics in Japan, he later became librarian of Beida and set up the Marxist study group there in 1918, which he called the Marxist Research Society. Chen Dushou, along with Li, ran a special issue in New Youth in 1919, completely dedicated to Marxism, both critiquing and praising this newfound philosophy. Of course, China didn't fit neatly into the Marxist model. There was no large working class or proletariat, and there were hardly any capitalists to speak of. A bit of tweaking was necessary. So, as Li saw it, the imperialists were playing the role of capitalists, and all the Chinese people were, conveniently enough, the proletariat. The foreign invaders were the ones who would have to be overthrown for China to transform into a socialist state. He encouraged the educated youth to go down to the villages and to learn of the experiences of the people there, which were indeed dire. I'll probably do an entirely separate episode on China's peasants in the early 20th century, but for now, just take my word for it. It was not good. By 1919, Li's group had built up quite a following, so much so that when Lenin dispatched two members of the Comintern to China to see if setting up a communist party was viable, they were summarily directed to Li. Grigory Voitinsky and Yang Mingjai met with Li and then with Chen Dushou, who had since moved to Shanghai, having been arrested and then fired from his position at Beida following the May 4th demonstrations. They worked pretty fast, getting the Communist Manifesto translated into Chinese and also setting up foreign language schools that basically acted as cover-ups, training students in Russian and then sending them to Russia for further training as communist revolutionaries. They expanded their network, setting up communist groups all over the country, like the one in Hunan province, which was run by none other than Mao Zedong. They also set up groups among students in Japan and those on work-study trips to France, which included later important CCP members such as Deng Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai, but we'll get to them way in a future episode. A meeting, the first plenary meeting of the Chinese Communist Party, 
was called in Shanghai in July 1921. Delegates from all the communist groups from around the country were to attend and discuss the strategy for developing the Communist Party. And if you're wondering, yes, Mao did attend. He had made a name for himself as a writer and a leader in his local labor movement. And there really just weren't that many members of the Communist Party at that time. So he was considered, I guess, high up enough in the ranks to attend. The meeting was led by a new Comintern member going of the name of Maring, Yang and Gregory having since returned to the Soviet Union. His brash mannerisms clashed with some of the Chinese members' sensibilities, particularly in the absence of the group's erstwhile leaders Chen and Li, who couldn't make the meeting for reasons just not entirely relevant. The group first met in a girls' school that had closed for the summer, but having spotted a suspicious character lurking about, they fled to a pleasure boat on a lake in Zhejiang. There, the 13 delegates adopted a Leninist-style organisation, with Chen Dushou made Secretary General in absentia, and a pledge made to seek some sort of collaboration with Sun Yat-sen's Nationalist Party. This becomes very important later on, by the way, so put a pin in that. And with that, the 13 delegates, representing less than 100 members, were sent back to their provinces to spread the good news and to drum up more support and more members for the now official Chinese Communist Party. And that is it for the founding of the CCP. I'm really sorry if you were expecting a bit more fanfare about the founding of what is arguably one of the world's most important political parties, but that really is all there was to it. But if you're disappointed now, I promise we'll make up for it in later episodes. There'll be so much chat about the CCP that you'll probably get sick of it, so it's probably best that we keep it to a minimum for now. Moving on to the second major outcome of the May 4th movement the development of new literature. There are two really important people to mention here in relation to the development of new literature. The first is Hu Shi, who we've briefly spoken about in the last episode, mentioning his new rules for literature, and then in this podcast as a role as one of the reformist professors at Beida. Having studied philosophy at Cornell University under John Dewey, he was made Professor of Philosophy at Beida on his return in 1917, after which he started campaigning for the use of the vernacular in literature. He became a foremost literary historian, looking to the great literature of the past, such as Dream of the Red Chamber, for models of how to develop a literary national language. Like I mentioned in the last episode, whose lack of focus on the content of new vernacular literature drew some criticism and eventually thrust a wedge between him and his former close friend, Chen Dushou. He became weary of radicals and extremists who constantly touted isms and droned on about the inadequacies of traditional culture, accusing them of dream talk when it came to social policies, as they never really bothered to understand the lives of those who they would proclaim they wanted to help. He slowly became more conservative, took up a kind of liberal position, and eventually fled the mainland with the nationalists once the communists took over in 1949. The second, arguably more influential writer, was Lu Xun. Lucian was destined to become the most famous modern writer in China, but was actually really reluctant to join the movement at first. In 1917, when a friend came to ask the 36-year-old to contribute to the movement by writing an article for the New Youth magazine, he lamented that there was no hope for China and his people. 
He said, quote, Imagine an iron house not having a single window and virtually indestructible, with all its inmates sound asleep and about to die of suffocation. Dying in their sleep, they won't feel the pain of death. Now, if you raise a shout to awaken a few of the light sleepers, making these unfortunate few suffer the agony of irrevocable death, do you really think that you're doing them a good turn? Unquote. Yeah, I know, it's pretty bleak. He'd perhaps become embittered by his previous failure as a medical student, a translator, a bureaucrat, or maybe he just saw no future for China and its people. Luckily, his good friend and famous historian Chen Xuantong persuaded him by pointing out that some people might actually be able to break out of this prison cell if they were woken up, and even if they couldn't, at least they would be conscious of their fate, which is better than nothing. Basically, he was telling Lucian that he should have at least some hope for humanity. Apparently, Lucian didn't even need that much convincing because he began writing almost right away. His essays and short stories were largely satirical critiques of Confucian society, the Xinhai Revolution of 1911, the corrupt government, and the deeply held superstition within Chinese society. His most famous work, The True Story of RQ, published anonymously as a serial between December 1921 and February 1922, uses the story of the protagonist, the peasant RQ, to reflect the state of Chinese society. In 1934, he wrote, My method is to make the reader unable to tell who this character can be apart from himself, so that he cannot back away to become a bystander, but rather suspects that this is a portrait of himself as well as everyone in China. Just to give a little brief on the story, uh, RQ is a hired hand, a labourer on farms in a village, who thinks himself superior to everyone he meets, including the well-educated and the rich, and views his frequent losses in physical and verbal fights as victories through severe mental gymnastics. His self-righteous behaviour gradually takes a toll on his position, but he sees an opportunity with the rise of the Xinhai Revolution. He misses out on the opportunity to become a rebel in the revolution, however, because he oversleeps. Literally me. When the robbery of the rich houses by rebels takes place, however, he's used as a scapegoat and sentenced to death for the crime. It was instantly received as a masterpiece. RQ was no hero. He was as common as common gets. He was no one and everyone, a victim of historical circumstance as well as a self-aggrandizing delusionary, someone who is only awakened to his fate after it's too late. Lucian's writings seem to reflect Chinese literary critic and scholar C.T. Shah's evaluation of modern Chinese writing as obsessed with China and its various afflictions, which were particularly Chinese in their form. This post-May 4th strain of literature has also been characterised as growing out of intellectual discontent and even disgust with current socio-political affairs, reflecting the author's own experiences and feelings through a sort of subjective realism. Lucian has lots of other stories that you should check out if you're interested. Uh, some really famous ones include Diary of a Madman, My Old Home and In the Wine Shop. Lucian was by no means the only writer of note who used short stories as a medium. Other examples include Ye Chantal, who founded the Association for Literary Studies, the first literature association in China during the May 4th movement, and Yu Dafu, whose explicit poems and short stories created big waves and launched him into celebrity in China, though he eventually had to flee to Japan after clashing with the communists. 
It is probably partly for this reason that his name and some others are not invoked when remembering the May 4th movement and its consequences in China, and even generally in the academic world. There is a specific way in which we discuss the May the 4th movement, the people and events and products that we talk about and those that we exclude from the conversation. The reason for doing this usually depends on what your motivation for talking about the May 4th movement actually is. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the May 4th movement is often described as China's enlightenment, or at least an important stage in that enlightenment. Unlike the 18th century Europeans who were seeking freedom from the bonds of religious authority, Chinese intellectuals were seeking to throw off the shackles of family loyalty and a strict social hierarchy based on Confucian patriarchy. It wasn't some glorious revolution. Both the aims and the results were unclear, and most actors were divided in their opinion about what the May 4th and the ensuing cultural movement was actually really about. Chinese historian Vera Schwartz describes the movement as, quote, the first of a series of incomplete efforts to uproot feudalism while pursuing the cause of a nationalist revolution, unquote. However, this is not how it's remembered in China. The May 4th movement is constantly referred to by politicians, cultural commentators, academics, and even student activists who participated in the event as a moment from which future generations should draw important lessons. Despite never becoming a communist himself, Lu Xun is essentially the poster boy for communists, especially in the 1930s and 1940s. He had institutions named after him, and he inspired both new art and new literature movements. One of Mao's most cited speeches, the talk at Yan'an Forum for Art and Literature in 1942, makes several references to the May 4th movement, both its achievements and its shortcomings. Again, there will come a point where there are just certain people and events that you get sick of hearing about, and I have a feeling that Lucian may just be one of them. What I can say is that history repeats itself. The imagery and spirit of the May 4th movement is continually invoked by the Communist Party as a building block for what had to come next, the new age that they would usher in where art and literature would continue to play an important role in developing Chinese culture and politics. And let's not forget the student protesters themselves. Many of the student leaders we've mentioned didn't just fade into the background of China's development, but actually went on to have influential roles and important careers. Luo Jialun, who we mentioned was one of the founding members of the New Tide Society and a prominent activist, went on to become president of several universities and even acted as ambassador to India under the nationalist government. After 1949, he went to Taiwan, where he retired, and in May 2018, an asteroid was actually named after him, so his importance certainly didn't fade. His close friend, Fu Sinian, also went to Taiwan with the Nationalist government, where he served as chancellor for a while, and went on to become director of the prestigious Institute for History and Philology at the Academia Sinica. Xu De Hung, who, if you remember, wrote for Citizen magazine, took his patriotism all the way to the Communist Party, becoming one of the party's top leaders as vice chairman of the Standing Committee of the People's Political Consultative Conference. And yes, I am more than aware that that sentence probably meant nothing to you. We will be covering the structure of the CCP government once we get to the actual CCP government. That's going to be a really fun episode. 
I think the most important thing to take away from the May 4th movement is that it was a turning point. It was the start of something new. Don't get me wrong, the student activists and their committed teachers achieved a lot, both at the time of their stint in Beidar and beyond. But rather than seeing May the 4th as an isolated incident, I like to see it as the beginning or a tipping point. The idea of appealing to the masses, to the broad awakening of Chinese society, to the restructuring of many traditional cultural facets was the watershed moment that spilled into the decades that followed. It was a continuation of the 1898 movement and the 1911 movement and the 1915 movement that had all come before, but at the same time, it was different. It's almost as if it had more force behind it. Enough of the force, again, to make it an actual tipping point. And the reason that I've wedged this episode, which is almost entirely about culture and intellectuals in between two episodes on politics is because the May the Force movement had a big effect on politics. It may have seemed as if it was just the cultural rumblings, the discontent of people who had no actual control over the fate of China. But like I said, the May the Force movement spills into something much bigger later on. And the effects of the May the Fourth movement are something that will be cropping up much more often when we get to episodes on 1930s, 1940s, and the beginning of the People's Republic of China in the late 1940s and early 1950s. So that's it for this episode, guys. I hope you have enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll be switching back to politics and talking about the warlords in the aftermath of the May 4th movement and the rise of an alliance between the nationalists and the communists. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you tune in next.